Um, so as I was standing over there and we, we were worshiping with you guys, I was, my mind was going in a hundred different places. And it always does when I'm standing in environments like this because, uh, because I just always pray as I'm walking into environments like this, like, God, would you just take me back? Would you take me back to that moment where I'm 16, I'm 17 years old, and would you just remind me of what I felt? Would you remind me of what life was like? Would you remind me of the internal things that, uh, the internal pressures and the external pressures that were happening in my life? And then would you give me the ability to be compassionate and think about the way that the world has changed since then and try to put my feet where you guys are? And I know I can't do it um, perfectly, but I try to put myself there and imagine all the different things that that y'all are feeling. And it makes me really excited for the series that we're in because I think no matter where you're at in your walk with Jesus tonight, whether you're a believer, whether you're not a believer, whether you're a passionate, fully devoted follower of Jesus, whether you're figuring stuff out or whether you're all the way on the other end of the spectrum and you're trying to figure out if you believe any of this stuff at all, that James has something to say to you. That I believe James has something to say to you. And I believe James has something to say to all of us because because the fact of the matter about this book, and the reason I love it, is because James just doesn't, he just doesn't pull any punches. He writes in five chapters what takes most people 25 chapters to write about. And he's like, let me just give it to you real quick. Let me give it to you real brief. Let me put it on the bottom shelf so that you can really understand it. And so if you're in here and you're trying to figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus, James has a lot to say to you. He has a lot to say to you. If you're sitting here today and you've been hurt by the church, you've had relationships with Christians, or maybe you're trying to figure out what are, what are they supposed to be like? What are they supposed to look like? What are they supposed to live like? Read the book of James. Because there's a way in which all of us, we've looked at other people's lives, and, and as much as we should as the body of Christ, we can't, we can't give you the picture of Jesus, the ultimate picture that you long for. We can't. We can't because we're not him. We're all broken. We're all fickle human beings who go in and out of faithfulness. And we have our own agenda. We have our own things that we're wrestling with. What you need is an encounter with the living Christ himself. That that's what you need. And the reason I love this book is because it's written by someone who had walked this road with us. That yes, we know that James was the brother of Jesus. Todd talked about that last week. And so you approach this book and you know that little bit of information. But as you actually search the scriptures, you begin to look at this brother's walk and the way that this all happened. You realize when you look in the book of John that, that James, I'm talking about, did not believe in Jesus to the point that he made fun of him. He was like, hey, you're doing all this stuff in secret. You should go out there and be public about it if you really are who you say you are. James. And then we see, we see James later on throughout the, throughout the scriptures. He and his, he and his, Brothers are trying to go seize Jesus because they're like, this dude's crazy. He's lost his mind because they don't believe in what he's doing. James. But then something happens where all of a sudden we see James in Acts chapter 1 and he's in the upper room and he's praying for the Spirit of God to come. Something happened to this brother. We see James later on throughout the book of Acts and he's leading the charge in the church of Jerusalem. He's facing persecution for his faith. He's pushing the mission forward in the name of his brother, who is the Christ, James. And then later on, we don't see this in Scripture, but we read this through historical documents. You read this in the Antiquities of the Jews, um, written by Josephus. There we go. Came to my head. Where he talks about the martyrdom of James, where he laid his life down and was stoned to death. And it says that James, the brother of the one they call the Christ, because Josephus wasn't a believer, was stoned to death by martyrdom and breathed his last. James, what happened to that guy? 
How do you go from making fun of Jesus, calling him crazy, that he's a lunatic, that you don't believe in what he's doing, to you breathe your last, you're taking rock after rock after rock for the sake of the mission. What happened to James? It's the same thing that has to happen that needs to happen in every single one of us. He saw Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, the Apostle Paul talks about this gospel that he's come and that he's been preaching. And he says, don't forget the gospel that I preached to you. Yes, Jesus came, he lived, he died, he raised from the dead. And then he starts to go through the list of people that he appeared to. And he names by name, he appeared to James. And so what takes you from making fun of your brother and thinking that he's not the Christ to all of a sudden I'm in the upper room, I'm praying for the spirit of God to come and I'm laying my life down for the sake of the church. You see him raised from the dead. And it's the same thing that all of us have to encounter. I don't know where you're at in your faith journey. Faith journey. I don't know what you believe, but our hope here tonight is not that you get to hear more about a message or that you hear more words that you can commit to memory that maybe you can explain to someone. The hope is that you have an encounter with the living Christ who is God. That that's our hope. That so many of us in here, we've grown up in this environment and we've seen God move in so many ways and we've heard all the stories and we've seen all the things, but you need to experience and encounter the living Christ for yourself. You got to see, you got to see. And it's not until we understand that about James, that all of what he says and all of what he writes, all of a sudden begins to make sense to us that James has seen Christ, that he was raised from the dead, that he believes the stuff that he's preaching, and that's why he preaches it with such intensity and such passion, is because he's seen. He's seen Jesus. That's, we haven't even prayed yet, my bad. Um, but this is, this is what we get to dive into. So anyways, what, what, no matter where you are in your faith journey, right, like this is who we're getting to read. This is his story, and we all need to encounter the living Christ. Real quick, let me pray. Heavenly Father God, um, Lord, I know that there's so many different people represented here tonight. God, I know that there's so many stories that I can't even begin to step into and claim to understand. People who have experienced all kinds of things, people who are wrestling through all kinds of things, People may look at him and say, oh, you're, you're just a teenager. You don't even understand. You haven't even, you haven't even experienced the real world yet, God. But, that's, but the world is crashing in around us whether we're ready to experience it or not. And so, Father, what they feel is legit. And, God, what I'm praying for tonight is not that they would hear helpful teaching, not that they would hear just encouraging messaging. God, my prayer is that through your word and by the power of your living, breathing Holy Spirit that they would see the living Christ and that they would be changed. That for those in here who need to be awakened, who have fallen asleep and have just gotten used to all of this, God, that you would wake them up by opening their eyes to the living Christ. That for those of them in here who maybe they prayed a prayer when they were little or they got baptized when they were little um, or they got pressured into whatever decision by someone who was around them, Father, that they would encounter the living Christ tonight and it would become real to them. That for those who are in here and they are thinking about giving up on this, God, that their eyes would be open to see the living Christ and they wouldn't give up. God, no matter who we are, where we're at tonight, what we need is to have our eyes fixed on and our hearts stirred for the living Christ. And so, God, would you answer that prayer in Jesus' name? Everybody said, amen. So James is our author. We just kind of walked a little bit through him. Who is he writing to? 
So James starts out in, uh, in verse 1. He says, this letter is from, from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I am writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad. Greetings. I love the way he says that. It's like such a formal entry. And he's like, hello. Um, but he says, greetings. And so he's writing specifically to Jewish believers. That's a very important nugget as you begin to, to track the rest of this book. He's writing to Christians, but not just any Christians or people who claim to be believers, but, but those who come from a, from a Jewish background. They're ethnically Jewish, but now they have become followers of Jesus. And so why is this important? Because, um, because James was raised in this exact same background, right? This is what Jesus, Jesus was raised ethnically Jewish, right? But he but he ushered in the kingdom of heaven and started what we now call Christianity and birthed the church. And so James is now writing to other people who come from similar backgrounds as him. And so there's a way that he communicates with them that is very brotherly. Like that is very, I get it, you get it. Let's, I'm not going to write all this formality. I'm not going to try to, like I'm going to write very clearly to you. And it's because there's a basis there. There's a foundation of relationship. There's an understanding there. But the people that James is writing, even though they claim to now be believers, it seems that something has caused James's audience to live in a way that doesn't align with the decision and declaration they made. That James is now addressing certain things that he obviously feels the need to address because they are now living in such a way that doesn't back up this declaration that they've made. They claim to be something that their decisions and lifestyles aren't lining up with. A lot like maybe many of us that are Instagram bio says something. People may have heard things about us. Maybe we claim to be something, but when you get behind closed doors or when you really get into the day-to-day -day lifestyle of who we are, maybe it doesn't align with what we've said. And so what is happening to them? Maybe, what's, maybe the same thing that's happened to us, and I think it's really two key things. One of them Todd dive, uh, uh, dived into a lot, so I'm not going to dive into that one as much. But first is cultural pressures and persecution that we see that we see that, that James is writing to a group of people who are, being, who are being persecuted, that they're being pursued not only by Pharisees and by the same people who killed Jesus and would later actually kill James as well, but they're also being persecuted as it spreads into, into other nations, into other Greek ruling nations, right? So they're, so they're facing persecution on every single side, and they're feeling these pressures to cave or to compromise on what they believe. So they made a declaration, but now that declaration is costing something, Right? We've all felt that before. You go to camp and you make a declaration. You're around all your Christian community and you make a declaration, but then it starts to cost you something. And the question is, oh no, is this legit? Right? And so this is some of the stuff that they're struggling with. They're facing this cultural pressure and persecution. And maybe it's beginning to influence them and make them question maybe what they believe or how legit it is. And then the second thing we see is there's a misunderstanding of grace and legalism. And, and there's a lot of a lot of background that comes back into some of this and some of it that we even address, address here today. But, but imagine this. If you've grown up in Jewish culture and customs and you're used to being underneath the law and held to a standard of the law over and over and over again, right? We see this throughout the Gospels that the people that Jesus has the most argumentation with are the Pharisees who are trying to, who are trying to chain people and enslave people to a standard of the law that they can't possibly hold, right? And they're doing it hypocritically. And so these same people have grown up in those customs and traditions. And so then they hear the gospel that Jesus has come, that he's taken their sin, that he's laid his life down. And now they can be set free by grace. And a lot of, and what can happen is that pendulum can swing all the way back over here where, okay, since I've been freed from grace, I've been freed by grace. Now I can kind of do whatever I want. 
I don't have to be obedient. I don't, I don't have to do the things that God tells me to do because I've been set free by grace. There's a lot of the New Testament that's written towards this. And so I imagine that there's a lot of this struggling that's happening as well with these people who have grown up in these strict Jewish backgrounds. And now they've heard about grace. And now they're figuring out what is this, what is this relationship between grace and obedience and how is this meant to play out in my life? And what James comes along to do in, in this letter is he simply holds us up a lifestyle as a mirror. And he begs us to ask the question, does what you're doing and how you're living reflect who you claim to be? Does what you're doing and how you're living reflect who you claim to be? And this is what he does. He shows us this mirror. And he goes on throughout the book and he tackles a bunch of different topics because we've got these people who are claiming to be followers of Jesus and yet James tackles disobedience, that there's hearing but not doing the word. They hear the word but they don't do the word. There's prejudice. They're not treating others equally based on status or wealth, that they see that you're wealthy or that you have something to offer them. And so rather than treating you like Jesus, where you don't matter any less or any more than this person, I begin to honor you and give you the front row and I push these people to the back. There's prejudice. There's hypocrisy. What I do, not aligning with what I say or claim. There's anger, harboring and acting out of resentment or frustration towards others. He talks about the way that they speak, that they praise God with the same tongue that they, kept, that they curse others who have been made in his image. Man, guilty. Right? That there's pride, not humbling ourselves before God in prayer and humbling ourselves before others in service. There's self-dependence. There's judgment, looking down upon others, criticizing others, gossiping against others. There's greed, putting our hope, security, status, riches, in, in, in riches and possessions rather than in God. And James goes back to back to back to back, tackling all these different topics. And he asks the question, does what you're doing and how you're living reflect who you claim to be and who you claim to follow? And so what James is doing is he's coming alongside us like a good doctor. And he's, putting out, he's pointing out what's wrong, not to hurt us, not to shame us, but to lead us down a path for healing and healthiness. That he wants us to see that there's a way of living that God has designed us to live and flourish. For us to have a clean conscience, for us to have a pure heart, and for us to be a good witness for others to see and go, wow, that way of life is different. And James is saying there's an option for that, and I'm trying to get you to see it. And so he does that. And we see, as we pick up in chapter 2, I'm just going to read this passage, and then we're just going to point out a couple of different things, and we're going to start to land things. It's in verse 14, we see faith without good deeds is dead. And, and you have to remember that all of this is one letter. It's all attached. There are no chapters. There are no subtitles. This is all one flowing letter, and so it all builds upon one to the other. And so as James writes about a warning against prejudice, he transitions into faith and works because he's seeing that the way that you treat people isn't reflective of the faith that you claim to have. And he begins to bring it back to works. And he says, so what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Is that kind of faith real? Is that kind of faith legit? Can it save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or a sister who has no food or clothing and you say goodbye, have a good day, stay warm and eat well, or the way that we like to do it, I'll pray for you. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? 
So you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It is dead and useless. Now, someone may argue some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. Verse 19, this will wake you up. You say that you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? It's garbage. Don't you remember that our ancestor, once again, writing to Jewish people, he says, our ancestor, our father, Abraham, was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see, his faith and his actions work together, and his actions made his faith complete. And so it happens, just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as, righteousness because of, counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Rahab the prostitute is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. And he sums up all of what he's trying to say with that last sentence. We see in verse 17, he says, faith by itself isn't good enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it's dead and it's useless. None of us want a dead and useless faith. It's dead and it's useless. It doesn't help people, and it's not getting us where we think it's going to get us. It's dead and it's useless. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Verse 19, good for you. Even the demons believe this. But understand this. The demons believe this, and they, terror, they shudder in terror. How many of us, we say what we believe to be true about God, and yet it evokes no response or reaction out of us. The demons at least have the audacity to shudder in terror because they know who they're talking about. That even they understand that there's a God. Even they understand that Jesus is who he says he is. We see it all throughout the Gospels. You are the son of man. The difference is they don't bow. So he says, even the demons claim to believe stuff. What makes it different is their life. Their life isn't surrendered to God. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without works is dead? Verse 26, to drive it home again, just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without works. He says that works is the breath of faith that makes it alive. And so what's his whole point? To put it really clearly, his main point is that real faith isn't just heard, it's seen. Real faith isn't just heard, it's seen. That the idea of our life is that, is that our faith isn't just a vocal, a vocal performance. It's not something that people just hear about as we casually talk about it. It's not something that we just discuss as we walk into church, but that is visibly seen throughout our lives. That as we encounter a living God and we see him for who he is and what he's done, and in the response that we see ourselves for who we are and what we've done, that, that evokes something out of us. That our lives change as a result of that encounter. And this is where I just personally have been wrestling through this different idea of how when people say that they have, that they have believed the gospel or that they have, or that, that they have been saved or they, that they've responded, what they're talking about is that I heard, these, I heard this message, I heard these words, I understand them, and I agree with them. Right? Like, I agree with them. But what we see throughout the gospels and what we see throughout the New Testament is that it's not just agreeing with a statement or a worldview. It's encountering a person. And that changing everything about you. 
That's why when Paul says, don't forget the gospel that I preached to you, he talks about Christ. Not just these different facts about our lives that we can then go, hey, I, I agree with that. It's a worldview, but no, it's an encounter with a person that changes everything about us and everything about our lives. And this is what James is trying to get at is, has that happened to you? Has that happened to you? Real faith isn't just heard, it's seen. And he really talks about two different categories on how this is primarily seen throughout the book. And the first one is devotion to Jesus. That we see that what changes about our lives is our devotions shift. And this is, what, this is what he writes about in chapter 1 as he talks about having divided loyalties, right? That our devotion is to different parties. And what James is now saying is that those who have truly experienced Christ, their devotion is towards Christ, that their hearts belong to him. And that changes everything about them. And so he says that, that the primary way that this is seen is that your devotion shifts and changes, that, man, when you encounter Christ and all of a sudden you show up and your friends are beginning to notice that, man, the things that you align yourself with and the way that you live your life and the things that you are devoted with, the way that you spend your time, the things that you prioritize, all of a sudden those things are shifting about you. It's not instant, right? It's a process. But those things are slowly shifting in your life. They begin to understand their devotion has changed. Their devotion has changed because faith has happened and devotion has changed, primarily seen as devotion to Jesus. And two, it's seen as in service to others. It's seen in service to others. This is what James comes back to over and over and over again throughout the entire book, but specifically throughout chapter two as he comes back. And notice, he talks about faith, and then he talks about works, but what kind of works? Doesn't talk about quiet time. Talks about the way that those works come out, flow out of you into the lives of others through service to other people. The way that your faith is seen, the way that your faith is put on display, the way that your faith is made visible is other people experience it. That you have seen Jesus for who he is and what he's done. That's changed something in you and now that what flows out of you is love towards other people. And it goes back to when Jesus was approached by the teacher of the law. He said, he said, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. You must be wholly devoted to him. This is the first and the greatest commandment. But a second is equally important. You love your neighbor as yourself. I don't know about you, and I know that a lot of us in this day and age would say, I just need to love myself better. I promise you, my problem has never been loving myself. I love myself fine. What I need to learn how to do is lay my life down in service to other people as I receive the love of God in Christ Jesus and lay my life down in service to other people. You love your neighbor as yourself. And he says the entire law and all the commands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. And I can imagine as James is writing this letter, and I can imagine as even we're sitting here and we're talking tonight, there's a tension that begins to rise up in us as we start to feel the urge to run out of these doors and do a lot of great things to prove ourselves, right? But there's a tension that begins to rise in you. And then you're trying to think, you're like, but what about grace? And a lot of us, we look at this and we feel like there's a point of tension, but I want to encourage you, the point of tension that we feel would not have been felt by James and by Paul. They knew each other, right? 
Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, he says, so we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law, Romans chapter 3. And then James writes in James chapter 2, so you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. And those things seemingly contradict, right? And you may hear that and you go, that's all I needed, close the Bible, burn it up, it contradicts itself, right? It's not faithful, it's not true. But here's what I, here's what we, we're just going to step into languages here for just a second. How many of you understand that one word can have multiple meanings, right? So like if I said rock, right? Rock can mean what? Can mean a stone, can mean music. A lot of people headbanging down here. Very proud of that. It can be music. It could be a name. There's an actor called Rock Hudson, right? There, there's, what else can rock be? It can be a genre of things. It can be a compliment, right? You rock. That, that it can have multiple different meanings. And that's similar to the word that's used here in the Greek. Is it's the word justify. And it is the same word, but it has two different meanings. And so as, as Paul writes, he says, you have been justified by faith. You've been made right with God. That in order for you to be made right with God, understanding, one, there's a problem between you and God if you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus, right? In order for things to be made right between you and God, it takes your faith in Christ. For you to believe he is who he said he is, that he's done what he said he's done, and for all your faith to be laid on him, and for you to trust in him for all things pertaining to salvation and life. That you put your faith in him, and that's how you're justified, that's how you're made right with God. But then, if, if you were to say, if you were to make a claim, and I were to say, justify that point, what am I saying? Prove it, defend it, right? And so, two different meanings here. So as Paul writes it, he says, you are made right with God, you are justified by faith, but what James says is you show yourself to be right, that you defend it, that you prove it, that it's evidence of your faith in the way that you live. And so, and so to sum it up, it's, it's we are justified, made right with God by grace through faith, and we justify, we prove to be right, we evidence our faith through good works. They don't compete against each other, they align with one another. And we've been, because we've been made right by grace, that changes who we are, and we show ourselves, we evidence ourselves in the way that we live our lives, in the way that we treat people in our devotion to Jesus. I love, uh, I love this quote by Dallas Willard. He says, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. That you cannot earn your salvation. That's something that's gifted to you by the grace of Jesus. You can't earn it. But don't make the mistake of thinking that effort is opposed to the Christian faith because it's not. That working out our salvation, working out our faith takes effort. It takes discipline. You have to do things when you don't want to do them. And you have to don't do things when you really want to do them. Right? It's dying to self. That there is a work that comes to this. We don't work for our salvation, but we work out our salvation. And this is why James and Paul, even in Acts 15, they have a council and they talk together. You can go back and read it. And it was debated over this very topic. How are we made right with God? And they were aligned. They shook hands on it. They agreed on it. They're not in competition. They fuel one another. You are, because you are saved by grace, your work should be beautiful. I'm going to start to land the plane here, I swear. So the way that I would sum up that part is, is simply this, that good works aren't in addition to our faith. They're the expression of our faith. That's the way our faith is expressed. That God's grace to us is expressed through us in our lives, in your day-to-day -day life, where you live, work, and play. 
It is expressed through you to your audience, to the people that are watching you live life, to your home, to your neighborhood, to your school. And so once again, as we finish things up, what James is doing here is he's asking us the question, are we really who we say we are? And he begins to give us these ways for us to test ourselves, for us to look in the mirror, to look at our lives and reflect, man, has Jesus really captivated me? And it all builds upon how James begins this book. Because his whole point is that you can't fake this. That something has to have happened to you. In James chapter, chapter 1, verse 6 through 8, that, that Todd read just a second ago, it's, it says, Be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver, for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea, as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything that they do. That word double-minded or divided in the Greek is disikos, and it literally means two-souled. Two-souled. And the idea here is that you are literally trying to be two different people at one time. That you have two souls that are loving and devoted to different things. And as I was studying this, I thought about who I was at 16 years old when Connor Monda shared the gospel with me. And he told me that the whole reason that I was, to lo- I was alive is that I could partner with God to show people his glory in the world. And I remember my heart being awakened to a purpose that was bigger than what, than who, than what I could ever fathom or imagine, and it captivated me in that moment. But I had already been living this life of absolute sin and addiction, and I was, had all these insecurities and all these different things that were just on the inside of me, and all of a sudden, I had my eyes open to there was, this, there was this opportunity to live for something that really, really, really mattered, but I also really loved this stuff over here. And when I read this and I saw two sold, I remember being in that moment, and there would be nights where I'm like weeping because there is this love for Jesus that I, I want to go over here, but I just can't let go of this thing right here. I just can't let go of this because what if... It's going to cost me. It's going to hurt me. I'm going to lose these things. And I'm living as a person with two souls. And the pro- Thank you, Spirit. Amen. <laughs> and the, and the, problem, the problem with this, the problem with this is that, one, I never felt confident in my standing with God. This is how this impacted me. I never felt confident in my standing with God. Because I wasn't living for God, because I wasn't actually making the decisions that reflect what I had had my eyes open to understand, I never felt confident in my standing with God. I never felt that he loved me. I was always insecure. I struggled to believe the gospel because I wasn't clean. And this is what scripture talks about when it says, I want you to have a clean conscience. I want want you to know and be confident in where you stand with God. And the fact is, is the way that I was living, I couldn't feel that. I was constantly insecure about the way that I felt with God, one, and two, Forgot where I was going. Two, God promises in his word that that life can't be blessed. James 1.7, such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. 
People who are divided, who are too sold, who are straddling the fence and living for this and this over here, that life will not be blessed by God. He can't. Doesn't, doesn't mean he doesn't love you. Doesn't mean he's not pursuing you. But James says that person shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord. Now, God is gracious and he's kind. And sometimes he just does stuff. So it's not to say that God won't be kind and he won't display his kindness to you. But James says, as far as your expectation, that man, if you're devoted to Jesus and you give him your all in all, you can actually expect that God's going to partner with you and that you're going to receive from him. And you can stand confidently in your belief in the gospel. You can have a clean conscience as you partner with God and that life is going to be blessed. And it wasn't until I finally, I finally, I had to push those things away. And I had to dive deep. Because of my natural lack of self-control, I had to delete absolutely everything. I got a minimum wage job because what I was doing was I was trying to take too much glory for it and it wasn't good for my soul. I couldn't afford to live in my apartment. I had to move back home with my parents. It's super humbling. And I just, and there were so many moments that my flesh would come back up and say, remember that stuff? Remember that stuff? Don't you want it? Don't you want it? And I'm having to sit there and go, I've seen Jesus. And I'm not going back because I've seen him and I believe him. And this is why James starts out the letter the way that he does. He says, this is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he's saying right here is two things. Jesus Christ is God and I belong to him. Jesus Christ is God and I belong to him. And everything else that flows from this, everything we've talked about tonight, everything you heard about last week, everything you're going to hear from the next three, for, the, for the next few weeks is based in that statement right there. That is the foundation of everything that James talks about in the rest of this is that I believe that Jesus Christ is God and I belong to him. He owns me. I've seen him. My life is his. And if you can't say that about your life, then all the other stuff is going to be a struggle. All the other stuff is going to be a struggle. So the two questions tonight, Jesus Christ is God. Do you believe that? That's an issue of faith. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is God? And I'm not talking, like understand the weight that comes with that as you declare that. When you say that you believe that Jesus Christ really is the one by whom, through whom, and for whom all things were created, and that that Jesus came to this earth, and he laid down his life, and he took your sin and my sin upon his shoulders, and he died a gruesome death to take the wrath of God upon himself for you, and then he didn't stay dead, but raised from the dead on the third day, and that he's alive, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and that he's not, he's not waiting to become king. He is king. He doesn't need anything from you. He is king. But by his grace, he's chosen you. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is God? And if you say yes to that, don't stop there because good for you. The demons believe and they shudder. Question two, I belong to him. Are you willing to surrender? Are you willing to surrender? And this has to do with your pride.
real faith. This is two sides of the same coin. He said, I believe he is who he says he is and I belong to him. I lay down all my rights. I'm a slave to him. He owns me. James. Every head bowed and every eye closed. You're going to have an opportunity as you go into your small groups to discuss this even further. I'm not going to do any crazy moment because I love what Jesus does in Luke chapter 14 as he talks about the cost of discipleship. He actually encourages people to stop and think about it. He says, consider it. Count the cost. Think about it. Deliberate. He doesn't ask for a blind faith where you just leap out without really thinking about it or weighing it. No. We don't have to. There's no trickery involved here. Jesus came, he lived, he died, he raised from the dead. He is who he says he is. He did what he claimed to do. We don't have to trick you, just research. And my question to you is, have you surrendered? And then for those of you tonight, like maybe you did surrender at, at one point and now you gotta do it again. That's not, that's not getting saved again. <laughs> it's called repentance. It's just saying, God, I've held on way too much and I haven't surrendered to you and I've had my own pride and my own agenda and God, I just want to surrender to you. I just want to open it all up again. God, I've lost track of what's most important and God, I surrender to you. And maybe there's some of you in here you've never done that for the first time. And you want to place your faith and your trust in Jesus and you want to surrender your life to him. You want everything to change. Tell your small group leader about that. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the fact that we are all here together. God, brothers and sisters, your creation. God, not there's not any of us that outranks the other. God, we are all made in the image of a God who loves us, of a Christ who came for us, of a spirit yearning to live within us and empower us for a life greater than we can imagine. And so, God, my prayer is that these students, God, may they get their eyes off of the stuff that is distracting them. God, may you get our eyes off of the mirror. May you get our eyes off of the people around us and we're giving them too much weight. God, may may we be open-eyed to your glory and to your beauty, God, to the fact that this life is short and we only get one of them. God, may we not lose sight of it. May we not fall asleep. God, may you awaken us with the glory of Jesus. For those of us who have forgotten the beauty and the majesty of the fact that there's a God who knows our name, that came after us, who wants us, of a Jesus that laid his life down for us, of a spirit that lives within us. God, may we we be awakened to the things that have become mundane to us. May we re-surrender again because you're you're beautiful and you're worth it. And God, you love us. Amazing amazing. God, we love you. We're your people. You are God and we belong to you. In Jesus' name, amen.